0: From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hello out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political podcast you've never downloaded. We really got to go with that. Anyway, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me in studio, he is the former Assistant Secretary for International Trade At the Department of Commerce, he is the one we know as the Honorable Honorable Alan Moore. Hello,
1: Alan. Hello, Justin.
0: And joining us from a remote, undisclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the renowned author of such books as American Politics on the Rocks. He is the one we know as Rich Rubino. Hello, Rich. Hello, Justin. Uh, behind the glass is uh, Rob the Engineer, keeping us honest as always, and somewhere out in the hinterlands of the nation's capital is our producer, Eric Thomas. Hopefully Dan Lipner will join us later. Hey, you know, there's a lot of going on, but the want to start off this episode with the absolute tragedy that's happening in the uh, eastern part of Syria, the northern part of Iraq. Uh, the area that we know as uh, Kurdish Syria, Kurdish Iraq, or if you are supportive of the Kurds, the sovereign country of Kurdistan. Uh, If you recall, we discussed in one of our last episodes last week about how President Trump had announced that he was pulling all troops out of the region, out of the Kurdish region, which pretty much uh, took hits from all uh, politicians and military experts in Washington, on both sides of the aisle, uh, the president stood fast and continued to uh, push that uh, that agenda. And then uh, over the over the weekend and into this week, uh, we are getting just horrid, horrid stories of what can only, I guess, be called Alan Moore. Um, War crimes? Genocide, uh, possibly? Uh, I mean, this is... Well, we can call it mayhem Mayhem. Right now. Okay. Um, it, the reports coming out of Kurdistan are just not pretty at all. Uh, there's, but,
1: there's an extra 150,000 or so civilians already displaced on the march, mostly women and children.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, last week, if you recall, we talked to... Uh, The Washington bureau chief of of, uh, Kurdistan, K24, the Kurdistan TV network uh, that was here in Washington. And he was getting ready to go to Erbil. I have since talked to Rahim Rashidi while he's been in Erbil. And again, it is not a pretty, it's not a pretty picture coming out of that region. Alan, let me start with you. Uh, Number one, we'll get into the politics and everything on this, but uh, we've seen video of allegedly i mean the, these have, these videos have not been have not been confirmed but i saw one video of what looked like turkish militia under turkish military command field executing kurdish rebels and other kurds these are visions that we were afraid of that I guess the White House didn't take into
1: consideration. Did they misjudge this? Well, they they clearly misjudged. Um, and when and it's in fairness to all the people who work uh, in the White House, in the National Security Council, uh, and and uh, in in the agencies of government that provide input, particularly the State Department, Defense Department, um, CIA, it, it it appears that most people who have been involved in providing input and advice uh, have had this vision of what would occur. And it turns out that they were right. Uh, you will recall that a year ago when the president announced rather abruptly and without uh, the, the, the kind of comprehensive conversation you would expect that he was going to f- fully pull U.S. troops out of Syria, the Jim Mattis, the, the well-respected Secretary of Defense, said, I've had enough. I'm leaving. And he didn't blast the administration, but it was clearly over, the, over that issue. In fairness to any administration, the situation in northern Syria— um, and northern Iraq and southern Turkey is very complicated, and and the Turks have been basically at war with the the Kurds, uh, an organization in in Turkey called the PKK, that is designated by the United States government as and the Turks and others as a terrorist organization. But let me me just jump in on that question, though, because you bring up a very valid point, is
0: has there been just an inherent hypocrisy on the fact that when the Pashmurga Kurds are literally the pointy end of the spear in fighting ISIS in the region, they are our allies. We stand toe-to-toe with them, and yet, at the same time, we push back when Turkey gives us a hassle, and we continue to recognize the PKK – As a terrorist organization. Is there a
1: hypocrisy there? Well, I I, I don't know whether hypocrisy is the right word. The problem was, and it started with President Obama. He's the one that decided to get in bed, if you will, with the Kurds down in Syria, who are apparently reportedly affiliated with the PKK. So they're part of the same group that the Turkish government has been at odds with and, and literally at war with for a couple of decades. So they're not they're they're not thought of as terrific guys. Having said that, they turned out to be great fighters and great allies in the effort to get rid of Isis. Now, it wasn't because they thought we want to be like America. It's because they were fighting for their homeland, right? And here were Americans who were giving them some credibility and some arms and some economic support. So, so we it it, it was an awkward marriage, if right. you will, because they were not the 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 best guys, and this was known in the Obama administration, and the Trump administration in, inherited that. Um, and, and and President Trump, I have no idea how much of that he even understands. He probably gets a nugget or two here, like, oh, they're not great guys. And the president says, and I want to get out of Syria anyway. I campaigned on it, so why don't we get out of here? Well, gee, Mr. President, right. we've got about 1,000 troops there. Uh, and if we pull out, chances are there will be a massive bloodbath, but a Rubina, bigger war Richard, than we've got now.
0: Right, but Rich Rubino, this is— a situation that goes even further back than the Obama administration. I mean, we counted on Kurdish support during Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and when we fit when we did not go in to Baghdad at uh, the at, at the order of pre- then President George H. W. Bush. Uh, a lot of the Kurds back then, again, Kurdish forces that we relied on in the north to help thwart Iraqi aggression in the region we backed out of there and let Saddam Hussein just go in there and run ramshot over them and this is going back 30 years
2: yeah no absolutely it was um, the Bush administration basically kind of goaded them go to the Kurds do some sort of an uprising and they, a lot of the Kurds essentially thought the United States would back them up and they didn't so essentially the Kurds were slaughtered in that. And that's why you he always heard George W. Bush when he was trying to make justification for going into Iraq in 2002, 2003. He would constantly say, you know, they took, he would constantly say that they massacred the Kurds. Well, that's partly because, that's partly because we had go to them to doing it and then we never came in and protected them afterward. Um, you know, what's interesting, though, about Donald Trump's promise, because it's true, when he campaigned in 2016, and this was in the Republican primary, and it was in part opposition to both the Bush. Bush George W. Bush administration and Barack Obama's administration, he basically said that there were forever wars, going back really to 9-11, Afghanistan and Iraq, though, were, were, the, were the two wars the most people knew about and the ones that Americans continuously started to oppose. Now, I mean, they, were, they, they generally favored them when we went in first in 2001, and Afghanistan certainly had almost 90% support, but it just kept lagging and lagging, and people were saying, why are the troops still there? And very few people actually thought when, they, when he was talking about getting troops out that he was referring to Syria. Um, or that he was referring to, you know, these 1,000 troops, for example. I don't know how many Americans, and would love see a poll on this, actually knew we even had forces there. You know, we have forces in a lot of places. We have bases all around the world that very few people actually know about. So it's really curious that this is the, this is the place where he decides he's going to take troops out, where very few people even knew this was even going on. I don't think that – I don't think anybody, from a political perspective – it would be hard for any Democrat to come in and say, you know, Donald Trump promised to take us out of these wars, and then mention Syria. They talk about the fact that we're still in Afghanistan, maybe the, you know, something to that effect. And if we still had troops, if we still had a, if we still had a litany of troops in Iraq, you would say something to the effect of, well, we still have troops, we still have, you know, the same amount of troops we had under Obama that we right. have under Trump, and no one would have brought up Syria.
0: Right. But Alan Moore, you know, it it seems to me that, uh, you know, there's always been question as far as the motives of the president in dealing with some of these foreign policy decisions. Uh, The Democrats and even some of his party have already come out and said, you know, how are you making these rash decisions regarding Russia, regarding China, regarding other areas? The the one with the decision making with Turkey and President Erdogan is kind of an odd one. Whereas Turkey is a NATO ally, do the interests of... President Erdogan necessarily meet up or merge with or even coincide a little bit with the national security interests of
1: the United States right now. Well, you 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 made the biggest point in 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 describing them as a member of NATO and as a member of NATO, they have obligations and the other countries of NATO uh, have obligations to each other. Um, having said that, uh, President Erdogan, who has uh, been in power now for a, part a, of long, a long time um, has uh, amassed an enormous amount of power, and has chosen in many in, in many instances to kind of go his own way, to thumb his nose not only at America but to to some extent at NATO, putting a lot of tension on the NATO alliance. Um, one of the criticisms of the president in this recent move, there's there's so many, but but uh, President Erdogan for for the the entire Trump presidency has said, just want you to know we have to go in to northern syria and clear out an area to create a buffer zone and 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 get some control over this group that's affiliated with our mortal enemy here the pkk this other group of kurds and We've also got a million refugees, and we want to put them into that buffer zone. They're they're creating a whole host of problems on our side of the border. We want to move them back across the border, provide some level of protection, et cetera. Now, he, the president, he— doesn't get briefed. He doesn't pay attention. He doesn't have any sense of history or show any interest in it. So he's basically thinking, oh, what you say makes sense. He trusts his own instincts. And that's why a year ago... He was on the ver. Well, he said I'm, we're going to pull out of Syria, and Mattis basically said, "Okay." But at that same press we're, conference, we're he also said. Here.
0: But he also said at that same press conference that we will always support and we are friends of the Kurdish people and the Peshmerga, and they fought side by side with. us. They are he, our brothers he, at arms.
1: The thing is, he can't. You can't have it, these things both ways in that kind of simplistic way it's nuanced it's challenging what we were able to do for the last two years particularly a year ago after after the president announced we were pulling out of syria and then lindsey graham among others but particularly lindsey graham said mr president you cannot do this all hell is going to break loose mattis is gone over this and the president which he hates to do Hates right. changed his mind and left this contingent of, of, of overseers. They're in harm's way, but they're not actually engaged right. in direct combat. They're providing a lot of support and oversight and information and so on, and it, it, not to mention all the equipment right. that, that we have. So, so he. He th- what what he needed to do this time, first of all, is probably not pick up the phone. Two, do some briefings before he got on with Erdogan. Three, not follow his gut instinct, which was to say, fine, let's get out of there. And it wasn't a thousand troops and, in the beginning. It was more like 50, 50. No, 50 people yeah. to, to move out of the area. On Sunday night, when all the bombing and shelling um, and movement of troops was going on, the decision was made, we got to get all of our folks, all thousand or, or and, so, to a to safe place. Right.
0: And Rich Rubino, you know, this literally plays into the hands of every one of our adversaries in the region. Right now, we've got reports saying that the Kurdish transitional government in Erbil has struck a deal with Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, who we were trying to get out of there originally because of his questionable human rights and questionable crimes against his own people. Now our allies, the Peshmerga and the Kurds, have made a deal with them which plays right into the hands of Vladimir Putin and the Russians, and now we get word today that the Russians are. In are on patrol in this part of Syria at the request of the Syrians, at the request of the Kurds. Did we get played in a foreign policy mess-up by Putin in Russia, who's going to have a bigger slice of an already unstable region for us?
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Putin seems to benefit from quite a lot from U.S. policy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, if you were, if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would say that there was some sort of a, uh, that there was some sort of an agreement here, some sort of a plot. But no, no. Um, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, it certainly benefits Putin, and it benefits certainly his sphere of influence. Remember, that was one thing. You know, Vladimir Putin um, was certainly a support, certainly a supporter of Assad, and part of the reason why Assad is still in power. In Syria, I remember the Obama administration essentially wanted to dislodge him from power, um, but, but Vladimir Putin was essentially saying that he needs to stay into power. You know, um, We've always had these kind of issues with, uh, with the Russians. You know, Going back, for example, I know they were very, um, there was a lot of animosity when we went into Kosovo, for example, because that was their cradle province. So, yeah, I mean, I think that certainly just does play into the hands of Vladimir Putin. But, you know, you wonder, after listening to, for example, the prank phone call that um, Lindsey Graham got, from the, from the um, alleged uh, foreign minister, um, you know, he basically hints at the fact that there was something here where involving um, Trump's, Trump's hotels, and it's also interesting when you listen to that call specifically, and you listen to Lindsey Graham talking, um, Lindsey Graham does not seem to make the same cases, you know, nationally he's always the hawk, He's always wants to support the Kurds, but when he talks here, he's essentially saying that, yeah, you know, Turkey has some problems, you have some problems with the Kurds, um, it's just interesting to see that he kind of takes the very the opposite position. If you're a conspiracy theorist, you would say that somehow Trump and Trump and Putin are somehow working together on this, and that somehow the hotels are involved. But of course, we have no you know it's all circumstantial evidence. So, price.
0: Alan Moore, we, I've talked to uh, friends of ours at the State Department, inside Department of Defense. It was reported last week that Turkish forces had been firing on areas very close to. American positions, American positions that were providing security support for the detention of known ISIS combatants. Uh, I bring this up because in talking to my friends, they, they are very concerned that our pullout of the region not only unstabilizes the region, but literally lights a fuse under the re-establishment and the rebirth. Of a bigger, angrier ISIS, uh,
1: do you see their concern? Well, it's it's it is certainly one of the principal concerns that has been on the table in the briefing books in the minds of uh, of senior advisors. Now, before we simply say that that what a great win for Putin this is, uh, it, if you look at the history of the region. In the history of the U.S. alliance with the, the, these Kurds who, who basically joined up with us. It was a marriage of convenience for them. They, they, they got economic support, weapons support, logistical support, uh, some, some guidance and a, and a fair amount of credit. It was a controversial move, as I said earlier. When when we did it with with President Obama, we're seeing now in part that that it was it was fraught with tension, challenge, difficulty. Then we got Turkey over here, champing at the bit to to go in and clean them out. We've got a president who doesn't have the the, the, the sense, the knowledge, the instinct to con- or the inclination for that matter to continue to do what what we'd been doing when when Erdogan would say we got to go in there he'd say if you go in there will be significant but- major consequences, including the the genuine possibility of sanctions, not just by America, but by all of NATO. You know, that we, we're cult- hearing so little about the rest of NATO, all of whom have arguably an even bigger interest than America because they're so close Wait, the, geographically. The,
0: the, Brit- the Brits have, have called what's happening currently in Kurdish Syria... A absolute humanitarian oh, tragedy. Have. And the, and, 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 I mean, the the there's French, nobody. The Italians have no, all come out
1: against this. Nobody's nobody's embracing it. But it's it's the kind of it, it's a situation that helps us understand why we have uh, international alliances. We don't just move. I mean, with this president, he just moves but and it, threatens. He doesn't say NATO. He says we. And if he could bring himself to lower himself in his mind and his view of of sending his senior people around to say, we need a consolidated collective response that will really, truly frighten Erdogan more does than it th- not, just the U.S. Does it not look like at this point
0: that this was foreign policy driven by the interests of President Erdogan and the Turkish government rather than what was in the best interests of the United States and the region as a whole, well, to me it looks like that we were appeasing a Trump landlord. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I mean, buying, I'm, I'm, I'm not yeah. buying the landlord no, no, I, I mean, stuff. I'm, I'm, I, I mean, let me—I I mean, I'm I, using hyperbole here, but I mean, literally, this was foreign policy driven by Erdogan and his interests rather than the argue the the stable interests of our national
1: security. Well, Here's the problem. It. It it happens. It, it happens that what Erdogan has been wanting to do is something that, in his gut, in his <laughs> his perfect gut, the president. <laughs> thinks it's a good idea. He admires these autocrats. He thinks we can get out of there. So who's
0: running the foreign policy? Those
1: guys can go fight it out uh, all they want, and we uh, can can stand aside and keep our guys out out of harm's way without realizing that we... And all of NATO has a massive stake in some level of stability in that area. So the president's instinct is to stand aside. He doesn't understand all of what Erdogan is doing. He doesn't understand the downside risk. He doesn't understand the need to consult, meet, understand. He doesn't understand the need even but to, this plays to right consult, into what Putin to consult. This plays right into Putin's playbook well, for dominance in the region. Well Putin, Putin you know, is 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 gonna be a player. He's selling a bunch of equipment to the to the Turks on the one hand, but we're in a situation now where it's not inconceivable that depending upon how many russians are actually in the region supporting the side that is opposed to the turks that we could have turkey the you know the sort of would be potential part-time friend of russia killing russians in the region there's all sorts of and, potential for disaster this is, here
0: this is a nightmare scenario that you're coming up with rich rabino I mean, again, I I pose the question, who, in fact, is running our foreign policy in the region right now? Because it seems to me that every time President Erdogan of Turkey just gets this inkling of I'm going to run in and take care of this PKK problem, apparently all he has to do is call up Donald Trump and call up the White House and get what he wants.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly what it is. You know, Donald Trump does not seem to listen to many advisors or potentially he will listen to somebody, some sort of an outside advisor. But he'll listen to Erdogan. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I mean for the United States, he will listen to advisors that have the pre formulated view that he wants them to that 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 essentially that he has, he just wants somebody to verify him. He likes yes men. He likes people that will. He likes confirmation bias. He likes people that will essentially say, "This is what i this is what you should do. This is how you should do it. This is how you should manipulate." It. And if those, those are the people that t- either he likes them, whether he's watching Fox News and decides they're going to be advisors, or people that generally tend to agree with him, he tends to give them roles. He calls up, you know, they talking to Tucker Carlson, for example. That's the way this president operates. It's not the traditional. You know, it's not like President Johnson during Vietnam. He consulted, you know, he consulted a bunch of wise men. They were supposed to be wise men. Um, they weren't so wise. But they came in and they told him, you know, this is what you have to do in Vietnam. So he says, I'm going to stay the course. In Donald Trump's case, he just listens to people that want to, he, people that agree with what he what he already essentially believes, what his hunch is, um, and he just, and, and that's essentially where he goes. Just like in the campaign, he said, um, I'm going to. He said, I'm going to rely on my great brain. You know, he's not going to rely on foreign policy advisors. That's why I think, in part. Uh, General Mattis essentially um, resigned because I think he thought when he was coming into the administration that he was going to be able to, to, to persuade the president to listen to, the, to, the, to, the, to his advisors to, you know, to somewhat at least um, now tie a little bit to international alliances. He didn't do that, and he realized that Donald Trump, re- that Donald Trump relies simply on instincts. He doesn't rely on, you know, certainly on analytics or um, anything or, his or history or anything other than what he feels and how he feels something should be applied. And then once he makes a mistake... It's always a victory, you know, declare victory, declare victory, no matter what the, no matter how you fail, declare victory. And that's essentially how Donald Trump, you know, basically, right. that's how he became. A, that's what he did in business and that's what he did in politics. Is, and it's different than any other president. Is,
0: Alan Moore, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Newton, last week suggested that, though, there might be uh, sanctions that we can put into place. Uh, and then yesterday. It was stated that we're going to put sanctions into place for Turkey's actions in uh, Syrian Syria Kurdistan. Is this too little, too late? Does because this, this, to me, sanctions are against individuals as punishment. What are we going to sanction? Against the Turkish military and the Turkish government.
1: Well, what he has said is that he was, other than he threatened to destroy their economy. Exactly. Oh come and, on. And, and and the way you the way you the way you do that first and foremost is you muck around with their financial system, their banks, and and that is not yet that, that has not been talked about yet, uh, which was in, in an odd way a sigh of relief to uh, to to the markets. Um, but but he's talked about a fifty percent. Uh, Tariff on Turkish steel, and the Turks make some steel, right. and they and they ship some to America, um, and and the, and, a, and a variety of other economic moves. It, more interestingly, the 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 Volkswagen, uh, the German company, uh, yesterday, in light of everything going on, said they were postponing a final decision on whether to build a one point two billion dollar factory in Turkey. Right. Now these kinds of things are bigger deals, but they but they speak to this point and the and the and the need to and benefit of talking to our allies uh about what we can do together to apply economic pressure. I mean Erdogan he's he's got his own views. He's got political imperatives. He's accumulated an enormous amount of power. He sees this opportunity. The president has always been, even though he had to be shored up by the people around him, the, a major sticking point. And, and all of a sudden out of the blue, Ten ten days ago, the president says, okay, we'll move our guys. And then the president has three or four different narratives after the fact to explain what he is and is not doing. Because I didn't
0: want to turn this into an hour-long discussion. Literally the same week that he talks about pulling out of Syria, he talks about putting in another 1,500 or I'm sorry, another uh, ten thousand.
1: No, no, I think it's eighteen hundred.
0: Eighteen hundred troops into yep. in Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Arabia. Yep. All right. I don't get yep. it. Uh, with that, we're yep. we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to continue to monitor the situation. Uh, follow us on Twitter. We're we're staying in contact with our uh, our friends who who are embedded in Kurdistan. Real quickly, Alan Moore.
1: The thing that's particularly interesting from a political standpoint right now is how many Republicans have ventured forth yeah. to be critical of this decision, including Mitch McConnell. And tonight we got Democrats in a debate, and we'll see what they have well, to say. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to talk about that in another John episode. John Timkus
2: from Illinois said he won't, he won't, he won't endorse them now for uh, 2020. Oh, gee, yeah, the first yeah.
0: One. okay. Yeah. He needs a lot more than that. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about another serious. Uh, political and humanitarian crisis that might be happening. That's the situation in Hong Kong and China. And we're going to talk about the China trade deal, phase one, part A, subsection 1D. That's when we come back. This is Backroom Politics.
1: That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any
0: reason or a one to say. That man turned his keys in he packed
1: and went away. What good is living? I soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today. I said, that's the way I feel.
0: studio a in podcast village upper georgetown washington dc this is the best political talk show you've never heard of it's backroom politics with your host and moderator justin russell and apparently we've had a pitching change inside the booth uh management has relieved rob the engineer and we've got our host and proprietor of podcast village charlie bernie working the board's And Rob, the engineer, is doing engineering stuff out there. That's cool. Uh, Joining us in studio right now is uh, our friend and Democratic political operative and bar-certified attorney in the great state of Maryland and the District of Columbia, Dan Lipner. Hello, Daniel.
3: Hello, Justin. Can we
0: get Can we get you anything? Fries, napkins. Well, you know,
3: soda. I, I, I a little bit of munchies because I, <laughs> oh. I, I was going after uh, uh, Rudy's drug dealer, uh, but I didn't realize a metaphorical <laughs> drug dealer.
0: I was just waiting for you to say we have the meats, trademark, copyright. You don't yeah, want that no. one? No, yeah, okay. no. There you go. <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to talk about another uh, serious situation that's happening, and it, and it and it's kind of tied in with another situation that we're still trying to get our hands wrapped around. So, uh, over the past few days, there has been talk that a trade deal between the United States and China had been put into place, and when I say trade deal, I mean some sort of tentative part one agreement, what the president is calling uh, phase one of a bigger China trade deal. Um. It was announced Friday that this thing had come into play. More news was coming out over the weekend. This is uh, both leaders, both in Beijing and here in Washington, were facing mounting pressure pressure to unscrew this uh, trade war that's been happening between the United States and China. Uh, Trump has said, it has been said that Trump had been increasing pressure on Beijing with higher tariffs. Beijing would follow suit and just uh, questionably make economic maneuvers inside their central banks and central government. Uh, It is been reported that both sides decided that half a deal was better than none. but. Now that the details are coming out about this quote-unquote deal, it doesn't look like as great a deal for us as it does China. Alan Moore as former Assistant Secretary of Commerce. under secretary uh, of Commerce. I always say
1: assistant, don't I? I, I sometimes let it pass. Oh. I actually had four of those working for me.
0: Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You were <laughs> well, the Assistant Secretary
1: of the, Commerce. The Under
0: The Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. That's what I was getting yeah. at. Um, you, you look at this deal as what's being reported. Uh, do you agree with some in Wall Street that this is not a deal we should be bragging about just yet? There's nothing to
1: brag about on either side. How so? There's not much there, there. So... Recall where we were. We were on the verge of increasing the twenty-five percent tariff on about uh, two hundred uh, on two hundred fifty billion dollars worth of right. trade. Um, that was going to go up to thirty. It was going to go to thirty on October fifteenth. Right. So, what the, the the biggest harm that the Chinese have done to a particular sector in America is our farm sector, and in the farm sector, most particularly soybeans. Um, they they eat and consume massive quantities of soybeans. Asians uh, all over the place do. I um, uh, think <laughs> think soy sauce and tofu just for starters. Um, and and uh, and the U.S. Ha- grows uh, fabulous soybeans of all different varieties and and qualities and types. Right. Anyway, and that industry has been devastated by the uh, the the Chinese move, and it's it's particularly painful. Uh, if you're a soybean producer, and in certain parts of the country, if you're um, a family um, farmer, it, it, well, that 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 raises soybeans. Uh, there aren't a lot of family farmers much anymore, but but there's some, and they're they're kind of big, wealthy families if they still are in the farming business. But but it, it's a, a very important part of the economy in uh, in some of the of the heartland, um, and and so if you think about about where we are we've got we've got these tariffs on all these 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 chinese products which simply mean that u.s consumers have to pay more for those products now to some extent if we can substitute out what we used to be made in china and buy the same thing for a, a, a similar price in india or vietnam um uh, for, for a, a couple of examples uh, or pakistan then then maybe maybe you do some some harm besides the tariffs um, you we, we buy less, or maybe we buy the same amount, we buy it elsewhere. It's a lot easier to substitute grains and, and farm products, right. like soybeans, and you've got Brazil burning down the Amazon so that it can convert f- uh, forest to cattle for a year or two and then plant soybeans. And Brazil has become the major substitute so, soybean supplier okay, so, to China. So
0: explain to me... This phase one half deal, because it, what I'm reading doesn't look like we've changed anything. It looks like a large shell game, replacing uh, agricultural buys and ta- and reducing tariffs on agricultural buys with tariffs on hard industrialized goods. Iffy agricultural buys. It's not. They're
1: not guarantees. Well, that's that's true. But there's no detail. There's no detail in this. So the the, the prime. Shouldn't that give us concern? Well, 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 the reason the market reacted was because because we're going to postpone the increase in in the in the tariffs. That that were due October fifteenth. We got some more coming up right. December in the December. Okay, and, and those and are those the, are the industrialized. Those are goods. the new pressure point. Right. Those are some addition additional product, and we've got this this really major problem in the farm sector of uh, 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 of the U.S. So the the Chinese were, were going to come, and then they weren't going to come, and then they came, and there were a couple of days of conversations. The pr- the principal negotiator for the Chinese is a deputy premier. Right. It's not the minister of commerce. It's a deputy premier. He was here. Right. He's a big, big deal. So it's important when he comes. And there was some general understandings, extreme lack of detail. A a non binding commitment to increase the purchases of agricultural product, and 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 an agreement not to to impose the next phase. So they sent over if, to those try were, and make the deal. Those were the big items in this. It was not worthy of an Oval Office meeting in the minds of most, but the one person who mattered the most was the president who who kind of insisted that everybody come in. People saw the reports, and the president talked about this as the greatest, uh, as he has wont to do, uh, one of the greatest uh, uh, trade deals in the history of the world, the greatest agriculture buy ever, et cetera. And it's not. It Dan, may become, me, but it's not. It's not right now. Dan
0: Lipner.
3: So that's actually the point. Um there are a couple of things, and this also includes what ha- what was happening with uh, Turkey and the Kurds. The president is playing his shell game of, of hide my scandal with something else, except I don't think he was betting that people who knew what they were doing were or something else more dramatic would happen based on those decisions. Uh, in both cases the president was shouting from the mountaintops about his successes but the only people that are listening are the choir. That's but, it.
0: But but the funny thing about it is or at the least shrink, saying it's a, it's a shrinking choir. It's the a shrinking choir. shrinking choir. But Rich Rapino, you know, it's funny because a friend of mine who's an economist down south was telling me that uh he equated this this trade announcement with China as really, really expensive jazz hands, that, you know, he, he, there's nothing to it, but if you look at it long enough, it looks amazing. Uh, are, are we literally getting into a situation where uh, we, we are literally placating our economic security for a headline?
2: Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, I don't know in terms of we. I think specifically for Donald Trump, the answer is yes. Um, I think that he underestimated, I think, the implications of the trade war, specifically with China. I think he's running for re-election in 2020, and the last thing he wants is farmers and people who had supported him in 2016 saying that essentially that we can no longer sell our products to China because of this trade war. And he wants somehow to be able to declare, you know, it's like George Aiken said during the Vietnam War, he says, declare victory and go home. He's, that's essentially what I think his strategy is. He's going to view this, and he's going to say, essentially, you know, I came in here, he, as he said, I'm the chosen one. I was supposed to essentially deal with this whole China problem, but no other president – the other presidents, just kicked the can down the road. I'm the one who essentially said – I'm the one who's to say, who – I'm the one who, who stopped the can and said we're going to essentially solve this problem right now. He's going to say, you know, he's going to say we negotiated with the Chinese, we have an agreement. He's going to declare victory. He's going to go home and he's going to run for and he's going to run for election And that's going to be one of his things: is that he won the he won the he won the trade war with China. Not saying that he actually did win the trade war with China, but of course perception is reality in Donald Trump's mind. He's going to try to make that the perception amongst the American electorate. And Both,
3: right? And but the American electorate aren't the only people at play here, or I should say. The macro electorate aren't the only people at play. The micro electorate, meaning the people who actually make their incomes from farming, Mm -hmm. um, who have been hurt, at some point, those markets will have permanently shifted, as Alan was correctly pointing out, Mm -hmm. that other people are trying to step in to fill the void. And once you've developed those trade relationships, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to to shift back.
0: You know, the thing about it is also... A interesting statement coming out of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, Alan Moore, was that the by the end of 2020, this trade war could cost the global economy $700, and $700 billion, which is basically the equivalent of the economy of Switzerland. Uh, that is a big number over a measuring game that we really don't need to be playing right now. Well, it doesn't just affect us, is what I'm saying. I think that loses that that loses the ball. Because we're, we're
3: not talking about the, the, the by the
0: way, he's Alan Moore.
3: Uh, no, I understand <laughs> that. But, but 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 I actually have an issue with the question. Why? Because the United States, in theory, the President of the United States and Donald Trump, he came into office saying he was going to fight for the interests of the American people, in this case the American farmers and American uh, American manufacturing. So keeping our eye on that ball, is there any proof that American manufacturing and American farming are benefiting from this? I think the pretty clear answer is no. On top of that you're talking, beca- uh, because of how the Chinese are handling it and Donald Trump not understanding that you need allies
0: both domestically and internationally to win these fights. But I think you're miss- I think you're missing the point on the fact that you know this pissing match between Beijing and Washington is literally going to have a seven hundred billion dollar global impact yeah, t- on the economy. T- t- tell, it doesn't t- just affect t- tell, tell, tell the Brazilian Beijing.
3: farmers that are now making money out of the deal. Well,
0: the, you you also have to tell uh, you know our partners in Canada, in Mexico, we're trying to get this you know NAFTA two through, mm-hmm. and if we're if we're sucking it, because of our measuring game with China. That's, I mean, this does not just affect us, it affects the global economy. If it affects, let's say, Sweden, it's a difference between Volvo opening a plant outside of Charleston, South Carolina, or not.
3: Right, but in the, in the in the game of brinksmanship that Donald Trump was going Is to play. Is there
0: really brinksmanship here?
3: Well, that's the thing. That Donald Trump, I mean, I've said this from the get-go, uh, that Donald Trump has given away everything he's had for bargaining leverage from the beginning of his presidency. Even though it was an incorrect argument, his argument about the Chinese manipulating their currency, he gave away about 15 minutes into his presidency. If you're going to use these rhetorical attacks or, or substantive attacks to win a fight, you have to use the leverage somewhere. You can't just give it away for nothing. And that's what he's consistently been
0: doing. But, but Alan Moore, what Dan's describing is that the, the president believes that he's playing on house money. Is he, in fact, playing on house money?
1: Well, I'm not sure I understand the question here, but, but all right, let me put it into
0: perspective. It, it, <laughs> it seems to no, it, it, it seems to me that this uh, that the president feels like he ultimately has the upper hand in any discussion that we're having with Beijing, regardless of the economic impact it's going to have globally. Does, I guess let me rephrase the question this way: Does President Trump understand? that going inch for inch with Beijing could have a direct impact on, a peripheral impact on our economy. Like, as I explained to Dan, if Sweden's economy goes south, does Volvo build that $1.2 billion factory outside China? Does uh, Kuboto build that $2 billion factory outside of Omaha?
1: So these decisions are you know multi-years in, in in the making the 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 problem here is that we have a president who thinks that who who measures trade deals on the basis of country to country by country um uh, trade deficits if you have a surplus with a country you're doing well if you have a deficit you're doing lousy that's his definitional sort of brain brainless uh, approach to this, which has got him into trouble forever, because we have a massive trade deficit with China, and in his mind, they're taking us to the cleaners, and we have to fix that. But now, in his so mind, we, we have, also have a trade deficit with Canada, which we don't. We well, I, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, we have it, we, 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 also have it, we, we used to have, and we still have tr- some trade deficit with oil producing countries. They sold us oil. We wanted their oil. We bought it. They didn't buy anything much from us and we bought a lot of oil from them because we needed it. We have we we buy what we need and we sell what we can. And in the case of China, however, and I've been we've been over this many times, we had some very bad habits emerge. We were cutting deals with the Chinese to that that had short-term gain and long-term challenges, and we and 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 Donald Trump had a point. He just doesn't understand what he's talking about. He picks up the talking point without really understanding what the the talking point means when he says it's up to me to fix all this stuff. Well what what he if you asked him what are 10 problems that we have with china he would come back with the massive surplus that they have he would not be able to talk in any intelligible way of about intellectual property and stealing our ideas counterfeiting stuff copycatting stuff um which it, it and cutting deals with the likes of boeing and caterpillar if you will and auto companies where They will build cars there and they will gain access to our production um, uh, and design techniques. For giving and giving up very little. We made some bad deals. Well, you don't fix that in 20 minutes or or a long weekend of, of conversation. You apply pressure. You but go the, to our allies. You bring others in who have also been used in, in or allowed well, themselves to be used. But we have no credibility with our allies. Well, it's how it's just, do we bring but, them in? Well, it, it, I mean, this is the problem that all the opportunity, all the normal way that you would do uh, these kinds of uh, international agreements – the president ignored from the get-go because he thought that he was so brilliant and and so powerful because of of the of, of the size of our economy. So now we're in this situation where we've got all this potential damage done. The Chinese are making calculations. We are we are not making the same kind of calculations with the input of a prep with the understanding of a president are the you know all the senior people and e- e- uh, the the econ- e- the economists and so on trade experts right. uh, kind of understand what's going on right. the president does not so there's always sort of this right. catch up does he Got understand it. the implications of what he's doing yeah, but Dan no Lipner, not really Dan lidner you know the
0: interesting thing about this is uh jinwa the chinese national news media outlet, or at least the preferred outlet of the Central Committee. Talking about this, they said, quote, this outcome is in line with the expectations of all parties. It took a step in the right direction of resolving China, U.S. economic and trade issues, serves the interests of the Chinese and American people, and is generally welcomed in the international community. Not once in that statement do they mention the, the words agreement. Ordeal. Are we overselling this here in Washington, or are they playing three-dimensional chess in Beijing?
3: Yeah, whoa kimosabi. I don't know who, who this "we" is we're talking about. The the uh, the 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 president is absolutely trying to sell it, mm-hmm. and to some extent, the fact that there's been so little given to him on this suggests that people in the know know that. The reason for all of this is because of his political issues that he wants to claim a win. That it yep. and and the Chinese to their credit, why on earth would they want to dance around and potentially embarrass the president? They want to take their win quietly and walk away. You know, it could be Richard yeah, Bina, I, I just I mean,
1: wouldn't call it a win. It's not a win. I, I mean, Where's the win? But it's not that the Chinese won so much either. It, it's just there's not a lot it, there. Well, if
3: they, if they got the postponement of any additional tariffs, that's a win. Well, And if maybe, the president doesn't have the political strength to go forward anyway, so if they want to but, es- but essentially flatter situation. him and say, yes, you know, you cut a great deal. And go, yeah, in 18 months, we're going to be dealing with a new president, so, assuming it's so not. Dan,
1: it's Dan, an interesting you- question of whether postponing that 5% increase is a, quote, win for China or a win for the U.S. economy. But, but, because many of us would argue that those tariffs are self-defeating and damaging to the to the U.S. economy. And I think that the reason that the market responded positively to the Oval Office announcement and meeting was not because they thought, whoa, we've got ourselves a deal. It's. Yeah, Whoa, but this is a, no, bit, no, I, but this is a situation Right, it's not an. It, no, but absolutely, a but it's, not an, it's not an either
3: or. Hold We're on, in this, this horrible is... position that the market doesn't like in the first place. So postponing it's a win for the market. But
0: the market, the market, literally is going to is going to be resilient in this long term. I mean. You're looking at it the way Donald Trump does.
1: Huh? You're looking at. Oh no! He's, he, <laughs> I, I, I was just no, what, taking issue with him saying that the Chinese got a win, and I don't see the win. There, there's the no China win. But what, I, what I'm saying and is, we certainly didn't get any big win the way the president is then, trying to portray. This is it. a this is a literally a which deal sucks less for who? Well, no, it's not a deal. It's a little bit of progress. Look at what Mnuchin said. He, even he, who with his with his high level of loyalty to the, to the president, said, "Yeah, there's not a lot of detail yet," and 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 the the, the Chinese didn't talk about a deal. Right. So,
0: by so the, by the way, the, the the left, you know, we always talk about the right wing conspiracy theorists. The left-wing conspiracy theorists think that Mnuchin had pushed a Chinese deal because he's got uh, movies in production in Chinese companies. Just so everybody knows there are left-wing. Has he got
1: Hunter Biden on his board yet? Yeah, not yet. So,
0: <laughs> Rich Rubino, I, I mean, when we talk about the negotiation between Washington and Beijing, we're a far cry from Nixon and Mao. Oh, yeah. Is is there something that could be learned from how Richard Nixon dealt with Chairman Mao back in the day, economically, foreign policy wise? Well, I think that
2: was a completely different. Um, I mean, that was just such a different perspective, you know. Um, and it, it you know, in the case of Nixon, in the case of Nixon and Mao, I mean, what Nixon did is essentially he opened up, he placated Mao, he in terms of going over to meet with him. Um, treating him with respect, and eventually he got to the point where President Carter essentially normalized relations with China. In this case, it's more about – and in this case, I mean, obviously we have a certain relationship with China, and we're certainly dependent on them, if for no other reason than because of the part of the debt that they own. Um, they keep buying up our bonds, um, even though it, even though we owe a lot to ourselves as well. But no, I think it's a completely different perspective. I think now it's basically, it's based more on economics, and it's also based a lot more here on domestic politics. That was based on geopolitics. It was based on trying to uh, kind of split the Sino-Soviet relationship, and we were able to do that somewhat in terms of Nixon and Kissinger. But in this case, it's more about economics, and it's more about President Trump at home being able to declare that he got some sort of a win. And as Dan was talking about in terms of the the, the microeconomic phase, he has to somehow convince You know, the farmers, the soybean farmers, you have to convince the people in Iowa and Minnesota and, um, you know, in in Michigan, Ohio – in Wisconsin, that this was a win, that it was worth essentially going through this entire trade war, this entire conflict, and that there was light at the end of the tunnel. And the way Donald Trump sells things, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be true. It doesn't matter what the probity of it is. It's just a matter of the way that he sells it. And that's what that's that for Trump would be a victory. But no, this is more economics, not geopolitical.
0: You know, we keep talking about a deal. We keep talking about agreement. We keep talking about progress. Alan Moore, have we just basically are we just punch drunk? Have we come to a stalemate and both sides are just looking for an on ramp, an off ramp that we could. Just I don't know.
1: I think there are some important issues that that have been discussed in great detail, and there was an outline of a, of a potential deal that looked like it 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 might might actually be good for the U.S. without doing massive harm to China. And then the Chinese, this was many months ago now, and then the Chinese basically wanted to revise it, so they they had their own second thoughts about it, and we're trying to get back. Uh, 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 sort of in that direction. So what you're saying Without, is, we, but w- but we, but when we oversell and pretend that we got some great deal when we didn't, it 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 maybe gets you a so, headline in the moment, but it's it's not uh, the so what I'm hearing to be in the long. So what term. I'm
0: hearing is is that this is not the quote. Unquote, greatest and biggest deal in economic God, history. No, not even by the Trump. But I'll tell factor. you what is a
1: big deal, and you made reference to it earlier, and 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 that is that we really do need to get the the Congress to approve the US uh, Mexico Canada agreement right. the the nafta 2 if you will um, because nafta the old nafta is still in place but it's going to expire the way this deal is set up and we we I, it's not that i'm expecting that we'll fi- find ourselves with no trade deal with right. those two countries but 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 that's an area that that needs some concerted legislative attention. It's one of the things that a fair number of Democrats also understand, and there's a, at least a chance we may get that done. Still, has it passed this either year. chamber? No, no, not yet. It hasn't even been brought up. But on that
0: on that note, another subject for another time. Uh, on behalf of Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, Rich Rabino. Uh, Rob the Engineer kind of doing assistant producing today, and Charlie Bernie doing Rob the Engineer type stuff. Thank you for your hospitality, we're always good having you. Lord help us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, was, that, by the way, that's what a, a Bernie sounds like. Hey, uh, you can follow us on speaker, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, you can listen to us on Spreaker, uh, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts uh spotify all of them were kind of a big deal now have a great week america we'll see you soon